Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to the episode 65 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, our musical guests are Jamie Hood and John Boyer, also known as the Hammer and the Hatchet. We'll share our conversation with them and some of their original music. Our lineup includes a eulogy from Jim Eagleman about his friend and mentor, John Olson. Jeff Tryon shares his take on the septic wars. Becky Staff tells us about her adventure with a mouse. And Dave Seastrom talks about the impact of erosion in Brown County. We have an interview with Lou Stant about his latest book of Moose and Men. And Carrie Ray dares us with another for a song. We'll begin the show by listening to our interview with Jamie Hood and John Boyer who perform original music as The Hammer and the Hatchet. Jim Eagleman shares the memory of his friend John Olson, and we'll hear The Hammer and the Hatchet perform Ferris Hill Massacre. It's my pleasure to have uh, Jamie Hood and John Boyer, the hammer and the hatchet, in the studio tonight, and we've just been treated to some absolutely excellent music, as always. So good to see you guys again. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for having us back. Thanks for coming in and bringing a more delicious original music. It's what we do around here in Brown County, a lot of us. Well, you know, all of the tunes were really spectacular, but uh, the the Ferris Hill Massacre was uh, particularly poignant, I think. Why don't you guys share a little bit of the story behind that tune? So that song is really about lost sacred spaces, and that happens when people come in to an area and progress happens, I'm afraid. Progress is happening around here, and they call progress... Uh, it comes in a lot of forms. We've got uh, a place coming in next to us, which uh, basically people did some logging and changed our area, our area that we've gone to, to hike and think and just be our getaway spot. You know, you get to thinking about that when you come onto an area hiking and all of a sudden, uh, you know, it doesn't look right anymore. And that's basically what this this right. and song it's, is about. And it's, you know, it's also about, you know, ch- things changing on pieces of land that aren't your property. So 
not only is it sad that the things have changed, but there's nothing that you can really do about it because it's all legal. You know, they're doing what they want to do on their own property, but people still have emotions about those things. Well, and, and the word progress is a lot like the word harvest. It just depends on which end of the experience you're on. Sure. That's exactly right. Yeah. What a heartbreaker. Uh, excellent song, though. Really goes right to the heart of the matter, I think. Thank you. So do you have any gigs coming up? We have a show coming up at uh, Chili Water in Fountain Square in August on the 11th. Uh, we've got Richmond Beer Festival on the 12th. Um, and we've got a few more events. Just go to our Facebook page, The Hammer and the Hatchet, and look up our events for, for what we've got coming up. But some pretty interesting and fun things coming up in August. Yeah. Well, what, one of the things that I love about you guys is that it's not just a band. It's also a love story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Ed, uh, you're, bless your heart, you're uh, like one of the few couples I know that can actually make that work. So It's uh, pretty amazing. And when I met Jamie, and everybody really needs to know this, when I met Jamie, Jamie was not playing guitar, and I didn't know that she could, she really could sing harmony or anything. And it yeah. just so happened we were at a party you know, get together with some friends, and, and as we often do around here or whatever, we, you know, we were playing music, and all of a sudden this amazing voice started singing harmony with me, you know, just perfect harmony. I was just like, oh, my goodness, you know. <laughs> I was like, that's it, you're mine. <laughs> Done yeah, deal. yeah uh, I never performed in front of a crowd. I've never been in a band. I've never done anything like the hammer and the hatchet before. Uh, last time I sang in public was in high school, you know, and, and uh, so it was pretty uh, trial by fire situation. It's taken a lot of nerve to get up on stage and sing alongside John, who's a fantastic songwriter and picker and singer in his own right. Well, so. But that has to help, though. I mean, you know, the fact that John pulls his own weight in the matter. I mean, yeah, yeah, know. he's too heavy to carry. Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing, uh, Jamie is uh, just, you know, an awesome person because she's very organized. She's really good at the booking and the managing of, of all the details like that, which I am not, you know. <laughs> I'm very well, much often, an artist, you know. I'm all flighty and daydreamy over here, and she's the one that really kind of, you know, focuses on what we're playing, you know, gets all those details together because, you know, booking gigs is very complicated. There's a lot that goes into that. It's super hard. You definitely <laughs> cannot do that without me. Oh, well, <laughs> it's true, I can't. You know, the, the thing about being an artist is you have to wear all the hats. And that's great if you happen to have all of the skills. Yeah. So it's really nice that you two share skills, share skills and you have separate skills that add to the team. That's right. It's pretty unique. It yeah, makes the load unique. a lot easier to bear when you know one hand washes the other. And that, that's really a unique thing I've learned in the years I've been playing music. Oh, so John, tell us a little bit about your fingerstyle guitar technique. I mean, uh, was that a Travis pick or? <clears throat> you know, I I don't know really what you want to call that. It, uh, it's not like I studied Travis picking or if I listened to anybody really, it would be two things. I, I oddly enough, Lindsey Buckingham does a lot of lot of picking, and I saw him live one time, and it just kind of turned things upside down for me, really. And I just had to. I knew from when I was a kid, first playing guitar, that. I could kind of do that. I didn't really know anything about playing it with a pick or anything, so that's kind of how I played when I was just started when I was like 13. And then I got into rock and roll and started playing, you know, electric guitar and stuff. Well, 
then I saw, you know, Fleetwood Mac and Lindsey Buckingham, and it was kind of like, oh my gosh, I can totally do that stuff. So I started really focusing on it. So then as far as like the alternating thumb kind of thing that goes with that would be, I, mm-hmm. I made myself, you know, study actually going to California by Led Zeppelin. Um, I thought that was going to be kind of an easy enough passage to roll along with. And, and once I got that, uh, off and run, I was off and running. I could play all kinds of things then. Well, you, it's a it's an absolutely beautiful style that you've come up with, um, very strong. It's kind of weird because I kind of strum too, which almost makes it kind of like a claw hammer style. You know, claw, claw hammer, hammer banjo. guitar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I can't help it. It's like I try to just finger pick all the way through something. I ended up just still strumming a little bit. It's just the way it goes. So, John, do you also play banjo? <laughs> Actually, no, I do not. I mean, I can, I can sit around and pick on one, yes, but as far as like playing one at a show or something, no. So I, you're a guitar and mandolin. Guitar and mandolin. That's yeah. That's that's where I'm at. Yeah. I've I've taken up trying to learn how to play a fiddle, <laughs> which is really terrible, but it's a good exercise. <laughs> uh, don't let him fool you. You know, he picks up stringed instruments pretty quickly. Uh, he plays a, a dobro pretty well. He plays uh, the fiddle, like he's saying, and, and uh, you know he he'll okay. mess around with things that he understands where the notes are on most strings instruments. Usually, I like playing bass for a band, you know, upright bass or bass for. I call that I call that John's happy place when he can just play bass. <laughs> I can just sit in the background and play bass. Smile. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, for the m- most part, yes, it's guitar and mandolin. Well, Jamie, you you're a guitar player your own self. Yeah, I trunk along at rhythm. You know, I try and keep uh, some structure in our music so John can riff around and have somewhere to land. That's my job. I, a- any plans to expand into violin or mandolin? or? Um, I have I have an electric piano at home, a Wurlitzer piano. That's John's grandpa's I've been dinking around with. And uh, I've played dobro. I, actually, the dobro at the house is mine, but uh, I don't really, I haven't played it out. Rhythm guitar is kind of my home. Uh, it's easy to do that and focus on singing harmonies. And another thing she's been really great about is she not on stage or anything, but after a show or something, she'll be like, you sped that up, you know, or you slowed that down, or, you know. <laughs> and, and that's really important for me because I'll go crazy over here, but, you know, I got to really, you know, she's really holding down the, the, she's holding it all together, and that's that's great. Well, that's an excellent relationship dynamic then. Not only <laughs> providing the, all of the wherewithal to keep the gigs together, but making sure you're playing in Yeah, time. you know, I'm pretty <laughs> just off in, out in space a lot. Thank you so much for coming in, guys. It was excellent to hear your music. We love seeing you again. Can't wait for the next opportunity we get. I know that you're constantly creating new work, and mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that's what we like to hear here at the Brown County Hour. Yeah, and that's, that's why we're here. You know, we love being part of this community. We love what you all are doing here. And, and uh, it's an honor to be, be able to come here to us, you know. It's a privilege. Well, thank you for that. This is Jim Eagleman reporting for another segment of Nature News, WFHB-FM Radio, the Brown County Hour. It is inevitable that through the course of one's lifetime, we will witness the slow and absolute decline of a good friend. They will seem to shrivel and shrink every time we see them. Maybe not as noticeable with frequent visits, but over time we see the change. 
They appear smaller and weaker, and while they may still have a humorous bent to their personality, a trait that maybe we first admired, even that has less punch. And so it was with a good friend who recently died, and this is my tribute to him. John Olson was the Division of Fish and Wildlife's deer biologist when I first came to Brown County State Park in the mid-70s. We first met when I was a lowly seasonal employee with the DNR. Lucky for me, he had an office in the park, and I knew I'd learn a lot if I could pick his brain as much as possible. He had a mild manner about him, but didn't much tolerate poor decisions and bad politics, as he called it. Outspoken and opinionated on occasion, I heard John dismiss the department's stand on protecting deer. By even the late 70s, deer numbers in the park had climbed to excessive numbers, and the forest's plant life was suffering. As a biologist, he saw this as a complete disregard for not only the health of the deer, but the integrity of the park. The Division of State Parks policy at the time was to not allow hunting. It had been a staunch philosophy of the DNR since Indiana State Parks had been established in 1916. You'll have to change that, Eagleman, he told me one day. But at the time, facing any kind of controversy or being critical of my employer, the Indiana DNR, was the furthest thing from my mind. I was young, impressionable, and I needed a job. But I could see the problem would not go away, and I ended up facing it head-on when I was hired as the park's full-time naturalist in 78. John suggested I construct what were called exclosures to document the impact deer were having on the park's understory. He knew politicians and the skeptical public would need graphic examples. Within a few months, plants would reveal deer preferences and help document the change. I proposed to my superiors a study of six exclosures in different habitats and slope exposures. The controlled plots behind a fence, 40 by 40 by 8 feet high, would be protected from browsing deer, and six test plots were established into which deer could freely enter. This side-by-side -side comparison would be monitored weekly over the length of time. Fortunately, I was given approval and a tiny budget to purchase treated lumber and fencing, and the park's labor crew would build the exclosures during a few weeks in the summer of 82. John was as much a public servant as he was a good biologist. He knew that you'd have to document any kind of impact, keep precise and accurate records as any good biologist, and be open with any inquiries from the media and the public. And above all, he said, be honest. CYA, Eagleman, he joked one day. CYA? What's that? I asked. Cover your ass. In later years, John's office was moved from the Fish and Wildlife Office in Bloomington to Central Office in Indianapolis. We kept in touch over the years as we both testified before the legislature, appeared before a deer task force the department had formed, and presented talks to the public. John was always prepared with a great story, a joke, or an example of how the public relates to animals, wildlife particularly. He said, we either hate them or love them to death. We all have special people who have come our way in life. They impact, coach, and teach us some things that are profound and some things that are just matter of fact. We look to these people as instrumental in how we turned out. They helped pave the way. They made you a better person. Abe Lincoln once said, Sometimes the people you meet in your life don't mean much. Others take a while to make a mark. The sign of true wisdom, it seems to me, is to know the difference. Rest in peace, John Olson.
Say, old Bill, heard you bought up Ferris Hill. Oh, I've seen those big machines coming around. Say, old Bill, you're still kicking back that swill. Your son runs off way back up in the harbor. I think you've lost your mind. 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 I remember a time Back before you came around When that hill for me Became hallowed ground I hiked up to the top Day a good friend checked out Fell apart up there, but I don't think you could give a damn about that. I swear I lost my mind. 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 Now you're clearing off all the big timber Say, old Bill, hope you made a mighty good dollar. So you don't give a damn about all the tops you let fall and clog up or holler. I think you've lost your mind. I think you've lost your mind. Think you've lost your mind You've lost your mind Now my clear, cool creek is running brown Now we pause for station identification 
You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. In this segment, Jeff Tryon adds his insight into the septic wars. Becky Staff shares her mouse adventure, and we'll listen to the Hammer in the Hatchet song, Bailey's Small Engine Repair. This is My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. The more I thought about what really makes Brown County Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do. That's what makes it my Brown County. In prehistoric days, the woodland natives who wandered through Brown County in search of game never worried about where they would go to the restroom. Each individual found a discreet spot to do his or her business in the Great forest covered and consumed all, and the native moved on, and everything went on more or less as before. Even if temporary hunting villages sprang up for a few months during a particularly good hunt, the ecological impact was negligible. When the first white settlers came to Brown County, they built outhouses. They considered it a sign of progress and civilization to be able to do their business under the shelter of a roof, and probably never considered the ecological impact of their outhouse pit toilets. Periodically, usually once a year, if they were able, they would dump a bag of lime down there and leave it at that. And if we visit pioneer home sites in Brown County, we can often locate the hole or depression where this all-important facility once stood, and generally speaking, the earth has swallowed it back up and mitigated whatever biological impact it might have had on the ecosystem. And you still see them today. Here and there, on some of the older places around, off about 20 feet behind the old house, a little outhouse to remind us of how things used to be not so long ago. There's one at my place. It is no longer used, but it still sits there. And I don't doubt that there are still places in Brown County where the outdoor privy is still in regular use. Not too long ago, a few years back, I was introduced to an older woman who lived in a log cabin and who still hand-pumped water out of the well in the yard and carried it into her house for all her water needs. I didn't ask where she went to the restroom. Then, Brown County got discovered. It was always there, of course, and people visited it and looked around with wonder and commented upon it, but very few among them, only the quirky and the cranks, really, actually moved here and lived here still too few to engender ecological disaster. But then more people came, and even more people, and still more people. People became modern and sophisticated. They began to resent the 20-yard stroll to the outhouse and became enamored of indoor plumbing. And with indoor plumbing comes modern sewage waste management. Up until the early 1960s, it was kind of a Wild West freebooters paradise, septically speaking. People who built new houses generally installed a septic tank with field lines. That was the general principle, but they often deviated from what might be called standard septic practices. 
Many years ago, a contractor told me that when he was called to replace a septic tank at a home here in Brown County, when they dug up the old tank, they found it to be nothing more than the rusting hulk of an old automobile body. The original owner had just buried an old junk car and then run the septic line into it. Voila, Brown County septic tank. Another lady told me once that she had septic field lines but no tank. I was trying to locate her tank to avoid hitting it while digging. She assured me there wasn't one and never had been. Due to cramped quarters between her house and the creek that flowed nearby, she said, they just ran the septic straight into the field lines. Despite my skepticism, I never did actually locate a septic tank per se, so maybe she was right. Some friends of mine moved here in the 1970s and bought an old farmstead next to a creek in a narrow valley typical of Brown County. And at some point, the county or their insurance company or somebody forced them to build a regular septic tank with a standard field lines and perimeter drains, all nice and standard, straight by the book. However, the whole thing is below the floodplain. There's no place on that property that it could not be below the floodplain. Another couple I knew were already well underway building their dream house on some wooded hilltop property where they had thought to use composting toilets. County health officials halted construction and forced them to install a standard septic field and field line system which required moving an entire hilltop and leveling it off for a septic field. I can't imagine what that must have cost. More than the house, probably. And all the time, more people, more people, and more people decided that they would like to live in beautiful Brown County. There is a point at which there are enough people to generate enough sewage that a legitimate septic sewer system is necessary for the public health. Funny thing happened when they decided to build a sewage treatment plant in Helmsburg. It turned out there weren't enough people, not enough sewage, to make the plant useful and effective. It is essentially wasted. Meanwhile, a few miles up the road, Bean Blossom is in desperate need of just such a facility. But you can't really move a sewage treatment plant, and moving Bean Blossom sewage to Helmsburg proved to be equally impractical. Why did they build the sewage treatment plant in Helmsburg instead of Bean Blossom in the first place? In a word, funding. That system was built with federal community block grants, and Helmsburg had enough poor people to qualify. Bean Blossom, not quite. Another victory for the taxpayers. Now, push has finally come to shove with the septic and sewer situation in Brown County. The county commissioners are considering laws that will require that homes meet certain standards at the time they are sold. That no house can be sold in Brown County unless it has a legal septic system that can handle the amount of sewage that it is likely to produce. Now, this is undoubtedly a good and wise thing to do in certain high-density neighborhoods which are exhibiting the results of groups of failing septic systems in close proximity to one another. It is not a good smell and can't really be considered publicly healthy. But the scientific fact of the matter is that the kind of soils and terrain profiles that we have in Brown County, clay soil in steep hills and ravines and floodplains, is not really compatible with the kind of septic tank approach embraced by our legal codes. I would guess that half the septic tanks in Brown County don't work and can't work. And when you try to hold them to the actual legal standard, they won't pass and can't be mitigated without major, major investments. A septic tank sitting in a floodplain can't work properly. It can't be legal. Take a look at a DNR floodplain map and estimate how many homes this might encompass. Resolving the infrastructure problems involved with turning a rural, hilly area into a high-density population urban area will not be easy, won't be cheap, even if possible. 
It's the age-old Brown County problem of people moving here because of the way it is and then wanting to change Brown County into what they had somewhere else. But the real point of contention with landowners and homeowners is that the rules change between the time they bought the property and the time they wanted to sell it. When they bought it, or their family before them bought it, nobody gave a fig about the septic profile, and they were free to sell it as they wished. But when these new septic laws are passed, their property will be encumbered with new rules that will affect their ability to sell their property at all. I can imagine that there are very many properties in Brown County where no legal septic system could ever be installed. The surrounding terrain or floodplain prevent it. Does that mean these properties can never be sold? For others, the cost of moving to a more modern septic system may be prohibitive, which ultimately favors new, wealthy transplants over the older, less well-off native landholders. And we've been saying this for 50 years now, but here it is once again. You can move here from Carmel, and maybe with enough time and money and political clout, you can even make it just like Carmel. But guess what? Then it won't be like Brown County anymore. something a little bit different. My wife, Becky Staff, is in, and she's going to relate a story that just happened to her a couple of days ago. One of the issues with living in the country is sometimes mice will find a great place to live that you don't want them, like your barbecue grill, or in our case, they occupied uh, one of our cars. And Becky decided without consulting me that the best thing to do would be to get the decon out and poisoned the mice, which actually did kill the mice. But unfortunately, they all died inside the uh, heating and cooling system of the car. <laughs> they were supposed to go to water, but they <laughs> went to our well, cooling system. And then the smell of death was so overwhelming that we couldn't even drive the car, and we paid a fortune to have a mechanic take the dash apart remove all of the dead mice, and then three different times, as I recall, they did some kind of ozone thing that left the car smelling somewhere between weird perfume and, well, the stink of a dead mouse. So with that on her mind, Becky was driving the new car the other day, and, well, Becky, why don't you pick up the story from there? Well, I just got back from lunch, and I grabbed my purse to go back into work, and lo and behold, this little mouse is sitting right under my purse. Scared the living daylights out of me. And I immediately called you. I remember. Freaking out, because... What are we going to do because there's a mouse in the car? And you said, hi, hon. <laughs> right. You having I, a problem today? And I, and I mentioned that we should trap the mice instead of right. trying to poison right. them. Because we've already learned that lesson. And... Right. But I had to take care of matters in my hands again. So I was searching on the Internet that there's this little gizmo you could buy and attach the battery and it'll make a noise, right? But it won't come in. Anti-mouse noise. Yeah. Right. It'll make a mouse uh, buzz that, won't, that mice don't like. But I won't get it for about two or three days. So I went to another website that said that essential oil of peppermint works because mice don't like the smell of mint, right? Well, I'm, that's right up my alley, except all my essential oils are at home. 
So I have to go back into town when I get off work and buy some peppermint oil, which I did. So I'm doused in the car, every carpet, piece of carpet with the peppermint oil. I'm doused in the engine, um, any, anything you could think of that might burn a, a peppermint smell. I'm doing this in the parking lot. And then I had another errand to run downtown. So on my way to downtown, I would rev the engine because that said the mice don't like vibration. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, going down the road, vroom, vroom, you know, and I'm thinking any time now that this mouse should be gone, right? And I hang a left and my God, that little mouse runs out of the steering wheel, across my legs, back onto the passenger side seat. And I see my opportunity. There's a parking space right up ahead. So I'm in the middle lane. I got to get ahead of this lady on the right. We were at the stop sign and she's on her cell phone, not paying any attention to the light. So I roll the window down. I said, miss, as soon as the light turns green, I got to run out in front of you because I need that parking space because I got a mouse in my car, okay? And she says, okay. And so the light turns green. I think almost anyone would agree with that. The light turns green. I'm just, you know, and I leap out of the car. Now, mind you, I'm in my uniform. And I leap out of the car. Yeah, yeah. The mouse is still sitting on the dash. And I fling open the passenger side door. And I was like, he's just like hanging out, right? So I'm like, I'll scoop this thing right out and throw him onto the sidewalk. And I did. I took my left hand and flung him out on the sidewalk. Great success. Lo and behold, there was two women walking down the sidewalk at the moment I tossed the mouse in front of them. And they went, oh, a mouse! And um, we're all three watching the mouse run to this glass door at the same second it opens and a guy walks out on his cell phone, clueless to what's now, going on. this is on. a restaurant right this there This is on a the restaurant. <laughs> and the door is starting to close and it's almost closed and, oh, the mouse is in. Now, why I didn't leave, I don't know because, you know, it would be my problem, but it is kind of my fault that the well, mouse Well, it was got. your mouse yeah. after all. Well, it was a wild mouse. So I run into the restaurant. And I'm running behind the mouse, and the mouse goes in the corner, and he sees this straight shot down this nice, clean, new restaurant. He starts running straight for the kitchen. Of course. The second there's a waitress right there at the door, and she immediately goes, A mouse! And then all the patrons sitting down turn and look, and I only had a few seconds to think. I grabbed a sugar bowl off the sideboard. I dumped their sugar packets out on their table, and I throw myself down on the ground right before the mouse has a chance to run into the kitchen. And I cup the bowl. I missed. And he runs down the sideboard down the other direction back towards the door. And I run over to the other side with the cup, and I miss. And finally, the waitress says, Why do you have a mouse? And I said, it's a wild mouse, and it was in my car. And um, she's like, but why do you have a wild mouse in your car? And I'm like, it's a long story. I live way out in the woods here. Help me. You get on the other end of the sideboard, and I'll get on this side, and we'll catch this mouse. Well, he found a little crust of a baguette underneath the sideboard, and he wouldn't get out. But I had to get the waitress on the other side of the sideboard, and I said, scare him, and he'll come running this way. So she did. And he started running towards the door, and I missed him the first time. I chase him all the way out, and he's back into the breezeway. I have a chance. I can cup the mouse again with my hand and fling him outside the door. And I did. 
Then the uh, manager's right behind me. Both of us turn and look, and it's like, oh, no, he's headed for my car. Now, you you left the car door open, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> 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 I was And he's heading for my car. But I run to the car, and I jump in, and I, you know, gun the gas. I, I did see the manager in the back rearview mirror tiptoe out into the parking space and look down but i'm not sure if we succeeded or not and that was my mouse story well the the upshot of that was that the car ended up in the shop and the mouse yes. had in fact got into the uh, air cleaner and made which, a nest which had to be vacuumed out but they did have to do the ozone thing again well, to get the dead smell out. It doesn't, it doesn't have a dead smell. It's got a little perfumey well, kind of mouse urine smell. Not anymore. <laughs> it smells like peppermint. Pep, with a little peppermint sprinkled over the top. This is Dave Seastrom. And Becky Staff. See you next time. This one's called uh, Bailey Small Engine Repair. It's our unofficial sponsor song. We're holding on to it for when we need a favor. We maybe go into the uh, business of writing jingles after this one. People do like this song, so we'll see what you think. If our mower breaks, we got we got an ace in the hole. Maybe we can get it fixed. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right, you ready? Well, you got a bad starter speed, a cool drink of water. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Small Engine Repair. Just got a flat, well don't matter It's a hard time to change a pattern Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Small Engine Repair Say so got a cast iron core and old brick strutting Think of power's just a little like But he couldn't put em down If you shot him with a 44 He sells guns, knives, bait and tackle Candy, cigarettes and tobacco All the things you only want When you really need them Got a bad starters need a cool drink of water. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair. Just got a flat one, don't matter. It's a hard time to change your pattern. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair. Well, he'll fix up your tiller. He even puts up with old man Miller. Likes to talk about the olden days where he kicks the dirt off of your tines. He'll just that carb on your weed whacker Says his grandson's a slacker Keeps him fetching, 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 fetching tools Until he gets it right Well, you got a bad starter's need A cool drink of water Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Small engine repair Just got a flat but don't matter It's a hard time to change a pattern Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Small engine repair Well, down the road some dogs are barking And the day is growing dark Gotta get to my bed and dreams in my head so I can make it an early start. Well, it's a hard turn of the ratchet day in the life with a hammer and the hatchet. Got our hands full of splinters, cause we're pining and certified. Well, you got a bad starters need a cool drink of water. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair. Just got a flat, what don't matter. Hard times to change a pattern Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Small engine repair Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Guns, knives, bait and tackle Candy, cigarettes and tobacco We need a line for your upright base Fresh, we sharp and lawnmower blades Got an old beat up and linen canoe Spark plugs, 
New news. 22 long rifle shells, bunch of stuff in the weeds that ain't for sale. Malabars, bows and arrows, chainsaws, and one rusty wheelbarrow. DVDs and VHS, Charlie Bailey. He's the best since we can rewind. Charlie Bailey's Small Edge Reaper. <laughs> <laughs> Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. In the final segment, we'll have a conversation with Lou Stant about his latest book of Moose and Men. Carrie Ray has a new for a song entitled Dare Ya. Dave Seastrom shares an essay about erosion and we'll close the show with the Hammer and Hatchet song Winter Fires. It's my pleasure to introduce Lou Stant. He is an author, a, a musician, a local character, and he has just published a book called Of Moose and Men. Welcome to the studio, Lou. Thank you. Thank uh, you. So we were just discussing the origin story of your book, which has been mm-hmm. erroneously claimed to be 30 years in the making. Right. Uh, what happened was that, to make a long story short, when we pitched the idea to the producer of this cable TV show of turning it, instead of into a drama, making it an absurdist musical comedy, he laughed in our face. And uh, so we said, fine, we'll give you the musical score, but don't put our names on this, please. You can have the score, but don't put our names on it. So, and so, so we, we took the idea and we ran with it. Uh, we created, in a sense, this absurdist musical comedy. In the newspaper, the reference to three decades going by, essentially what that meant was that we took it to a certain point and we didn't know what else to do with it, so we stuck it in a file. There you and go. for three decades, it just sat in a file. Well, and I came upon it in, at the beginning of 2011. I hadn't looked at it in years. And I thought, man, this is a great idea. Well, there you go. And so I... Uh, I started writing, and I never looked back, and I think six to eight months later, I'd written the book. I didn't write an absurdist musical comedy. I kind of changed it because my whole perspectives had changed in the 30 years that had passed. Um, I wanted it to be a little bit more inspirational, and so I uh, created what I refer to as an allegorical fantasy Throughout my life, I've always, and I think a lot of us feel this way, I've felt like there were two, oh, two kind of forces vying for my uh, attention, for my identity, for uh, my time, my effort. One being that that part of me that's very attracted to the outward world, the things around us, uh, and another one uh, being that which is attracted to the inner world, the the sort of spiritual, mystical, metaphysical world that exists. And I think that's what this book is about. The two major characters are representative of those two extremes. Well, I'm uh, interested in your terminology of uh, absurdist uh, musical theater. Are, are you referencing like fire sign theater kind of or? 
I mean, that, yes. that would have been about that time frame. Mm -hmm. There was a certain amount of that. I think there was a, a, a it was Fire Sign Theater meets Bertolt Brecht and, and, and other things. Uh, but the way we originally imagined it, there was going to be a plot that was interspersed with musical numbers. And a lot of the musical numbers were going to be performed by the moose. And so we just had these really elaborate ideas about how all that was going to work. Is the moose, uh, did he survive this? Uh, the moose are a character okay. in this uh, novel. The more, moose, more than one moose. Then. Yes, the moose are traveling in a herd, which is not at all like moose. They don't travel in herds. They travel solitarily. But due to a threatening presence in their environment, they've all banded together into a herd for the sake of protection. So these are smarter than the average moose, then? Uh, they're kind of presented that way in the book, yes. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Well, how can we get a hold of this book if we want to read it or purchase it? There is a website, loosestant.net, in which uh, it will be available very soon as an e-book. And folks can also just purchase it from me at performances. They want do you to have a, a Facebook page? I do have a Facebook page, yes. And I've been talking a little bit about it off and on on the Facebook page, so they can go there as well. There's a link on the, on the website to the Facebook page. Well, thank you so much for coming in and telling mm -hmm. us about your book. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm Carrie Ray with another installment of Forest Song. From the time I was three to about 11, we lived in rural Park County, Indiana, along Highway 36 near the little burg of Belmore, which was nothing more than a caution light whose four corners were populated by a store slash gas station slash post office, a volunteer fire department, a tiny farm implement, and an ice cream joint called It's the Berries. Our little two bedroom house was separated from the neighbors by a small holler with a tiny stream running through it. There was just enough space on the other side of the stream for the neighbors to fence a small pasture for their horse. I used to like to sit under the massive mulberry tree, watching that sandy-colored mare run the perimeter and gorging myself on mulberries when the time was right. The neighbors had two boys and a girl. The closest one to my age was Tommy. He was a couple of years my senior. We rotated between playing Cowboys and Indians, G.I. Joe, the Six Million Dollar Man, and just kicking around with dirt and sticks. His dad let me taste beer one time, PBR, because Tommy dared me. I said I thought it tasted like cat pee smelled. He dared me once to touch the electric fence as I stood with both feet in the creek. Said he and his brother had done it and that it weren't that bad. Said it might even be turned off. I had the wits to step out of the water first before I laid my finger on what I was sure in hindsight must have been wire made of fire. But what else was I to do to defend my own childish tomboy honor? The challenge had been laid, the gauntlet thrown. I had been dared. One time, not long before we moved, he tried to get me to play I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Because his uncle had a pig farm and he understood how it all worked and was sure he could explain it to me too. He called me a chicken right there in the hen house, but forgot to dare me, so we didn't. Daring. It's a noun, a verb, and I'm interested in both as it applies to both, 
songwriting, and life. I want to exhibit more daring in my lyrics, my melodies, my adventures. I'm not timid per se, but I am quite Midwestern with all of my lust for what is safe, tidy, predictable, and certain. It occurs to me that perhaps daring, the verb form, is the best treatment. What if I started daring myself to crawl out on the skinny branches? And if not without a net, at least with a sketchy, moth-eaten one. What if I decided to take on things that were scary simply because they were just that, scary? So I'm still finding ways to take that on. But the latest is participation in an eight-week online songwriting challenge. It works like this. We start with a private Facebook group of 19 songwriters from around the country. The rules are simple. A prompt is given on Monday morning, a phrase that must be used in the song you write verbatim. The song must be at least two minutes long, no co-writing, no acapella. It must be written, recorded, uploaded to SoundCloud, and shared with the group by midnight the following Sunday, or you are kicked out of the group. I was invited by a friend and fellow songwriter from Alabama two days before it started. I read his invitation, and before I could think about it too much, I thought, I dare ya and sent a message that just said, I'm in. So what scares you? And what would happen if you decided that fear was no longer a deterrent, but a catalyst to have you choose just that? What might you dream up, build, start, write, sing, sculpt, overcome, if you just said, I'm in? Go ahead. I double-dog dare you. I'm Carrie Ray, wishing you Godspeed and hoping you'll join me next time on For a Song. If you have ideas, questions, or topics you would like to have covered on For a Song, please send them along. You can reach me via the contact page of my website, carryray.com. That's C-A-R-I-R-A-Y.com. Thanks for listening. In the Midwest in general, and Brown County specifically, we've been having unusually heavy rains. The state of Indiana just set a new record with over four inches of rainfall in 24 hours. These heavy rain events have had a devastating effect on several communities across the state. Here in hill country, heavy rain causes almost immediate flooding in our low-lying areas. And it doesn't take long until many of our roads are closed due to high water. This is inconvenient, but most of us know alternative routes, so we're seldom stranded. The real issue is soil erosion. Several weeks ago, over 100 people attended a meeting held by the Lake Lemon Conservancy. The focus of this public meeting was on the siltation of Lake Lemon. When it was built in the 1950s, the projected lifespan of the lake was 120 years, and at this point, the lake is halfway silted in. Without some form of remediation, the lake will become a swamp and then a delta with no open water. This is not only a loss of the recreational value of the lake, Lake Lemon is also an alternative water source for the city of Bloomington. When I inquired, it became clear that the board of directors were unaware of the massive increase in the rate of logging in our state forests and the impact this will have on the watershed of the lake. There are several state forest properties in the watershed of Lake Lemon, 
and each of them will be logged under the terms of the Strategic Forest Plan. This lack of information isn't their fault. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources doesn't advertise the content of the forest plan. This information can only be discovered by researching their website. This plan increases the rate of logging by 400% over historic practices. And along with this comes large areas of clear-cut where the forest floor is bulldozed and 30-foot wide gravel roads are constructed throughout each property. All of these practices create erosion. Some attempts are made to stem this situation after the logging is completed. But since almost all of these properties are on steep hillsides, they are not effective. On the 1st of July, about a dozen forest activists took a hike on a Yellowwood State Forest property located off of Carmel Ridge in Brown County. What we saw were poorly constructed or non-existent erosion controls that were allowing a massive amount of erosion to take place. Deep troughs were carved into the hillsides, obliterating the little streams that used to be teeming with life but are now barren. Everywhere we looked, there was evidence of topsoil bleeding from the hillsides, and all of it was heading for Bean Blossom Creek that flows directly into Lake Lemon. After every rain, Bean Blossom Creek is thick with silt and becomes the color of dark chocolate. Lake Monroe shares a similar fate, and it too is silting in. A huge amount of this watershed is also in Brown County, and a large portion of it is on state forest lands that will be logged and carved up with gravel roads greatly increasing the silt going into this lake. It should be noted that Lake Monroe is the primary water source for the city of Bloomington. I believe we are seeing the impact of unintended consequences. In other words, while the DNR is focused on increasing the revenue stream, the leadership isn't seeing the greater impact of the strategic forest plan, especially as it affects vital water sources of the surrounding communities. Many of us are concerned about the greatly increased logging in our state forests. What we have now are a group of state forest properties that are in 100 years of recovery. A white oak tree can live to be over 400 years old, and if the current plan is allowed to continue, there will be no mature stands of hardwood trees in any of our 13 state forests. This, in and of itself, is bad enough. The loss of wildlife habitat, dense, unbroken wilderness, and devastated hiking trails greatly diminishes the recreation value, but also the lives of everything that depends on the forest, including us. With so much at stake, it's time to see this forest plan for what it is, and to recognize the impact it will have on our economy, local lakes, and to those of us who find spiritual renewal when hiking in unspoiled wilderness. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. City's restless dreams 
you, my darling. Watch the days unfold like the flowers that bloom along can't grow. When our fires are slowly dying, the weather's been harsh and trying. Your hand in mine is all that I want. When the daffodils are blue. Thanks for tuning in to episode 65 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and at our new time the following Wednesday at 5.30. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe, now more than ever, that the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.